If you would, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. In the movie The Sixth Sense, Malcolm Crow, a child psychologist, takes on the task of helping a young boy, Cole Sear, who has the same problems that an ex-patient did. This boy says that he sees dead people. And the boy's mother is at her wits in as to what to do about his increasing problems. Crow seems to be his only hope. Or so it would seem. In reality, the boy does see dead people. And Crow himself is dead. Which Crow only comes to realize at the end of the movie, as does the viewer. Then the viewer comes to a different understanding of the events in the movie. For example, Crow does not have a conversation with his mother, played by Tony Collette. He does not miss the anniversary dinner with his wife, and so much more. Everything is different in the movie, except for the reality that the boy, Cole, does see dead people. Now, rightly or wrongly, I think of the conversation on the road to Emmaus that first Easter, when the two disciples, Cleopas and his wife Mary, encounter a stranger who says to them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Let me read to you from Luke 24. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor in Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. So the chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Then the stranger, who is in fact the resurrected Jesus, says to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then this stranger retells the story of the Old Testament, beginning with the Torah written by Moses, all the way through the prophets. It is, if you wish, like finding out at the end of the movie that... Bruce Willis' character is dead. And then you go back and think through everything that happened and it now looks different. And this is what it must have been like when the people come to realize that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But we are not Old Testament people. We're not people even during the time of Jesus. We are New Testament people. We live after the resurrection. And what we find, as we saw last week, is that the end of the story breaks through in the middle of the story. If you wish, it is as though you find out in the middle of the sixth sense that Crow is dead. And then you can watch the rest of the movie knowing, in fact, that he is dead. We are given insight and understanding as to where the story is headed because the end has come into the middle. And that end is the new creation. And we see this in the resurrected Jesus. The end, if you wish, or the purpose, the telos of creation and redemption is a new creation. This is the story. 
And in the Great Commission, Jesus tells his disciples, I have given you this story and now you are to tell others. The story is the good news, the gospel. So if you look at our text in verse number 15, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. This is in the NIV. Uh, The ESV says, and he said to them, uh, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Just a side note, I've chosen Mark 16:15 because it speaks of the gospel or the good news. Um, Matthew's account says, go and make disciples. Luke's account in Acts says, you will be my witnesses. Um, I've chosen Mark because of the language. And I do understand that there's some people who don't think that it is, in fact, authentic. There's a note even in the NIV that the most reliable manuscripts... I don't happen to agree. I think that this is scripture and that's why I've used it as such. So, anyway, what I'd like for us to do today, what I would like us to consider are some thoughts about the good news or the gospel, in part to challenge our thinking, but also to lay the foundation for a new series that I'd like to begin. So let me share some thoughts with you. Let's begin with a couple of illustrations. The first illustration is fictional, and I'm grateful to N.T. Wright in his new book uh, where he talks, he gives this illustration. Imagine that you are sitting in a cafe or a restaurant or in a bar with a group of friends, and suddenly a stranger rushes in, someone you don't know, and he looks sort of wild-eyed. He rushes in, and he says, good news. He shouts it out, good news. You'll never guess the greatest news of all. You wonder... What on earth could he be talking about? What could his good news be? And what makes him think that it is appropriate to share it with people who are strangers, people he does not know? Well, there's several possibilities. and There are actually hundreds of possibilities, but let's consider three. Perhaps the doctors have just told him that they have managed to cure his daughter of the disease that is killing her. This is certainly good news, certainly good news for him and his family. But what does it have to do with us? I mean, what I mean, why tell it to a group of total strangers? Second possibility is that his favorite sports team just defeated their longtime rival. Um, I remember one of my neighbors who lived down the street told me about the first time that UCLA defeated USC in football. They all crowded on Westwood on Wilshire Boulevard. I mean, it was a big thing. Yeah, but you know, if you rush into a restaurant or a bar and you say, listen, we've defeated our enemy, for all you know, some of the people you're talking to may in fact support the rival. So that doesn't make sense. Perhaps it is that in an area of high unemployment, he has just learned that they have discovered a huge deposit, huge reserves of coal or oil or gas. This means thousands of jobs and a new start for everyone. And so for him, it is good news. The message of Jesus is called good news. But why is it news and why is it good? What is the good news that Jesus himself announced and told his followers that he entrusted it to to announce as well? Well, consider the three scenarios that I've just mentioned. 
Each one of them has, I think, something particular to help us understand the matter. First of all, the news in each case is not out of the blue. You have a dying child, and now she has been cured. You have a long-time rivalry, and someone has won. You have an economic decline, and now the possibility of economic recovery. So the news is within a larger story. It isn't just one bit of information. It is something that fits in a much larger context. Secondly, the news is about something that has happened. The man comes in and tells us it is good news. Perhaps his daughter has been cured. The team has won. They have discovered reserves of coal or gas. Something has, in fact, happened. And now everything will be different as a result of that. His daughter will be cured, or the rivalry may continue, but now his team has the ascendancy, and economic recovery is seen as possible. But thirdly, the news introduces an intermediate period of waiting. This is something we don't generally consider. You see, the child is still in the hospital. Yes, the doctors have been able to cure her, but you don't say you're cured and you throw them out the door. There is a period of time in which, perhaps weaned off of certain drugs, uh, kept for observation, the child is kept there for a while. Those who are unemployed will get jobs, but not today and not tomorrow. It'll be a while before things actually start to take off. These three things, I think, are true also of the Christian gospel. That the good news of Jesus comes within a larger context. It points to a wonderful future, but it also introduces a period of waiting. A period of waiting. So that's a fictional illustration, if you wish. Let's look at a historical one, one that comes from around the same general area and time period as Jesus. In the first century B.C., the Roman Republic was marked by chaos. You have Julius Caesar becoming dictator, then you have him being assassinated, you have the fighting and defeat of his assassins, Brutus and Cassius, and then the two men who defeat them, Octavian and Mark Antony, fight each other, and then Mark Antony is defeated, And finally, Octavian is victorious, and he is now going to be the emperor of the Roman Empire. If you had been a Roman in those days, you would have heard the good news. Octavian Caesar has won a great victory. He is now master of the whole Roman world. This would be news about something that had happened. The backstory of the civil wars has now come to a close. The civil wars are over, and now there is a time of peace, the Roman peace. It is in this context that we see the word good news. We are so familiar with it, we think of good news or gospel as a Christian word. It is, in fact, the word that precedes the Christian faith. It was the slogan that was used to describe or to announce that Octavian had become emperor. It was the good news. And so now he would bring peace, justice, and prosperity to the world. But there's also a time of waiting. See, after Octavian defeated Antony, the Battle of Actium, he had to consolidate his power before returning to Rome. It would actually be two more years before Octavian would come back to Rome and the Romans would get to see him. So for two years, the people in Rome are waiting 
The city is poised between the news of what had happened, that he had won the victory, and what would happen when he returned. What news does is create a new period of time. And it results in a world that is looked at, or is in fact, very different. Christianity is good news. The Christian faith is good news. It is news about something that has happened, which results in, in fact, a new period of time. Read 1 Corinthians 7. Paul is very clear about this. It is a world that is a different place. The third thing I'd like you to consider is what the Christian gospel is not. When Roman heralds would announce a new emperor, or in the case of Octavian, the first emperor, they did not say, or did not even imply, uh, here's a new sort of imperial experience, and you might like to see if it suits you. No, what they said and what they meant was very clear. Octavian or any of his successors were referred to as the Lord of the world. You are the lucky recipients of this good news. He demands your loyalty, your allegiance, and of course your taxes. That's how Roman good news worked. However, for us as Christians, it seems that over the years, the past few centuries, the Christian gospel has ceased to be news and has become more like advice. So that if you talk about the Christian faith, even if you witness or share whatever euphemism you'd like to use, most people imagine that you are talking about an option, you're pre presenting an option to people that they might like to take up if they feel so inclined. And so it becomes like a piece of advice. For some, it's a new kind of spirituality, a Jesus-focused interior life. If, if you're not at peace within yourself, um, then here is something that might change that. For others, it's a new way of living. It's a Jesus-based morality that you and perhaps your family, your community might want to follow. For still others, it is taking out an option on your future to make sure everything works out at the end, uh, a kind of retirement plan uh, to make sure that you at least are safe and sound, uh, even if the rest of the world is not. None of these, we must admit, is entirely wrong. The message of Jesus and the message about Jesus, in fact, do include something about spirituality, something about morality, and something about the future. But these, as they are presented, they miss the main point, and that is that the message of Jesus is not advice, it is good news. When Paul and the apostles preached the gospel, when they told people the good news, they were not inviting them to a new way of thinking or living. They would enable them to live or think differently. He was telling them something has happened that has changed the world. The world is now a different place. And he is summoning them to be a part of this new reality, this new different reality. So just as the Roman heralds did not say, here is a new sort of imperial experience, and you might like to see if it suits you, um, but rather, Octavian is, in fact, the Lord of the world, and you are the lucky recipients of this news. Paul does not present the gospel as advice. It is worth noting 
that Paul uses the word herald to describe his vocation. In 2 Timothy 2.7, For this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. The fourth thing I'd like you to think about is the backstory. In writing to the Thessalonians, in probably what is his earliest uh, epistle, Paul tells them, you turned from God, or you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. As we saw with the opening illustration, good news, in fact, must have context or a backstory. Otherwise, it's just ridiculous or foolishness. You have a wild, a wild person coming in and yelling good news. It makes no sense. In Paul's day, to suggest that somebody leave his or her god or gods to follow another one could, in fact, be dangerous. If people would no longer participate in traditional forms of religion, especially sacrifices and festivals, then bad things might happen, either to them, to their family, to the community, or even to the city. And if people refuse to take part in traditional acts of worship, traditional observances, this was seen as scandalous, revolutionary, and ultimately subversive. To introduce a new way was offensive. It was offensive, and it was not welcomed. Or, on the other hand, it might just be seen as ridiculous and foolishness and something that people could simply ignore all something that is altogether boring. But as Paul preached the good news, there was a backstory. There was a backstory. It was not a one-dimensional presentation, I think, as we oftentimes imagine, or we may have, in fact, done ourselves. You see, what we see this in what he wrote to the Thessalonians. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. In other words, there's a history here, but before that, the backstory is that something had happened. God had created the world. God was living and sustaining the world. And God had redeemed his people in the Exodus we see in the Old Testament. This is the backstory. And then you have the good news. He who is the fulfillment of the backstory, Jesus has come into the world. He died for our sins and he has been raised from the dead. We hear this in 1 Corinthians 15 as Paul writes about the resurrection. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's the backstory. According to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And there it is again. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. There is the backstory. Remember, for something to qualify as news, there has to be an announcement that something has happened a larger context or backstory against which to see this piece of information, a sudden revelation of the future, because of this piece of news, things are now going to be different, 
and a transformation of this present moment. When I hear this news, I am transformed. I'm either happy, I'm giddy, I'm ecstatic, or I'm, I'm deeply saddened by the news that I hear. Having said that, I'd like you to consider that oftentimes people have a different or the wrong backstory. Many people assume the story goes like this. What we need is life after death. And we don't want to go to hell. We want to go to heaven. And so, Jesus was raised from the dead, so we know that there's life after death. Yay! Um, and so, this is the good news of the gospel. This, in fact, is a caricature. And we, we hear many, if you wish, caricatures of the gospel in, in various ways. Because they lack the right backstory. There is no proper context. It's simply, are you feeling a little blue? Jesus can give you peace. Um, and suddenly the backstory is non-existent. It's all about you, and you, in fact, become the story which Jesus is going to somehow adjust, and that becomes good news for people. When Paul said that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, there is a huge backstory to this. Now, some people might not see it as a backstory. They simply will pick and choose certain texts in the Old Testament that sort of hint at revelation, or sorry, at resurrection. Um, and so they're like, yeah, Paul is thinking of those verses when he says this. Um, I think Paul would say, you're misunderstanding me altogether. Paul wants us to understand that the good news means God's plan to rescue the world, and it has been accomplished through Jesus. The end of the story has broken through in the middle of the story. Here we are, and now things will never be the same. In the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with this, this idea that people reject the good news. Why would you reject good news? And I'd say because you have the wrong backstory. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. See if you can imagine Paul in the first century, in that historical context. And before Paul comes into town, a herald comes that's been sent from Rome. And this herald says, good news. We have an emperor. He has saved the world. He has brought peace to all. He is our Lord. He is the Son of God. This is what they said about the emperor. 
We find this on the various statues of emperors scattered throughout the Roman Empire. After the herald leaves, Paul comes into town and he says, good news. The world has a new Lord. He is the true son of God. Already this sounds strange. One might begin to wonder if Paul isn't in fact mimicking the herald or maybe making fun of this royal herald who has announced the emperor. People are asking, who is this strange little man who is making a royal proclamation of good news about a new Lord? And who is this new Lord? Well, he's a Jew. For a lot of Gentiles, it's not, it's not good. And he was crucified. Okay. And he is called Jesus. At this point, people might think that Paul is insane. How can a crucified man be the Lord, the Son of God? Paul counters, he is alive. God raised him from the dead. And now the Gentiles in the crowd know that Paul is crazy. Because everyone knows that dead people, once they're dead, they don't come back to life. Especially someone who's killed by Roman soldiers. They were professionals. They knew what they were doing. What is the problem? Why don't they hear Paul? Why don't they accept the good news? In part because they have a different backstory. For the Jews, the Messiah was supposed to defeat Israel's enemies, not be killed by them. Crucifixion was a shameful way to die. And for Jews, even more so, because we read in the Old Testament that curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. So they reject the message because it doesn't match the backstory that they're holding to. For the Gentiles, this simply sounds like foolishness because in their backstory, no one comes back from the dead. And so they reject the message as well. It is not good news to them because the backstory doesn't allow for it to be. But not everyone rejects the message. Because something happens when the good news is announced. It transforms people. And they are saved. By God's grace, it has transformed us. We have heard the good news. An announcement that something has happened. So it's a larger backstory or context, which makes sense. It is a sudden revelation of an opening future. It transforms the present moment. But what I would like to ask you and what I would like you to consider is do we really believe the gospel? Yes, we do believe that Jesus came, that he taught that he was put to death, was raised from the dead, and ascended into heaven. But do we have a right sense of the backstory, which allows the gospel to be good news? Why is it news and why is it good? I think we may not often know the answer to that. Do we believe in the transformation of the present moment? Do we believe that in the resurrection we have the end of the story, the new creation breaking into the middle of the story in the midst of redemption. The Lord willing, I plan to embark on a new series in which what I want us to consider is why is it so hard to believe today?
In my opinion, it is more difficult to believe today than it was a hundred years ago, than it was five hundred years ago, than it was a thousand years ago. And why is that? Why is it that the gospel has ceased to become, or ceased to be good news, and has become advice? Something that is optional. As I said, the Lord willing, in the weeks to come, I hope to explore this. And in the words of the man who had a demon-possessed son, say, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. In exploring why in 2015 it is more difficult to believe the gospel than it was a hundred or a thousand years ago, by God's grace may we come to see what the good news is and why it is to be believed. And by God's grace, cast off those cultural weights that are pointing us in an entirely different direction, in a direction that says, you can believe if you want, but that's optional. But a a truly serious person doesn't. This and many other things, the Lord willing, we will look into. Let's pray together. Our Father, we would affirm that we believe that we believe that Jesus came according to the Scriptures. And yet in some ways the Gospel has ceased to be good news. It has ceased to be proclamation of a new king, of the transformation of this present moment, the opening of the future. Become something much, much less than that. Maybe something to make us feel good, to get us through dark times, give us a sense of security or peace. But in some ways, it's no longer good news. I pray that in the weeks to come, as I prepare, you would guide me in our conversations as we talk about why it is so hard to believe in the present time. You would open our hearts and our eyes. And the gospel would once again become for us good news. We pray for Toby that you would touch him, give the doctors wisdom as to what needs to be done. We pray for Zib and the work that she does. We are grateful for her and ask that you would watch over her and protect her and guide her in the work that you've called her to do. Pray for Dan and Lonnie as they'll be leaving next Sunday that you would give them safety as well. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.